Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 129. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. On today's show, we're joined with Seku Cook, practicing architect, assistant professor at Syracuse University, and the curator of the exhibition, Close to the Edge, The Birth of Hip-Hop Architecture. That show will be opening at the Center for Architecture on this upcoming Monday, October 1st. So, Seku Cook, it's great to have you on the show. You have a an exhibition opening up on Monday, October 1st, called uh, Close to the Edge, The Birth of Hip-Hop Architecture. We're obviously going to be talking about that, but maybe before we get started, you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and how your career has got to this point where you are curating a show like this. We talked about myself other than the show, which... Sure, yeah. <laughs> Please. The last few days has seemed like nothing but the show. I bet, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for having me on. So I'd like to say that the show is definitely a big deal for me. It's probably one of the most influential things that I've done to date and a big part of my career thus far. I don't believe it defines my entire career. There's quite a lot of other things that I'm doing. As you know, I'm an assistant professor at Syracuse University teaching in the School of Architecture. I've been here for a few years on the tenure track. And I do a lot of work with undergraduate students teaching in the studios and the seminars. I also run my own practice that I've had for just over 10 years now. I'm working mostly individually on small residential or commercial buildings. Some of those projects are getting a bit larger now. Um, just completed a house in North Carolina and doing a larger renovation of a building here in Syracuse. And a lot of other buildings are starting to pop up in my practice here in Syracuse. So I feel like there are many, many things that I have going on at the same time, all under the guise of an architect who's trying to be a professional, part of the discourse of the discipline, and a practitioner at the same time. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. I mean, do you sleep? It is. Much? Or... You know what? I tell my students that I'm busier than all of them, but I sleep eight hours a night. Oh, Excellent. that's great advice. Yeah, that's wonderful. Every time they complain <laughs> about not sleeping, I tell them that sleep is so important. I wouldn't get done all the things that I get done if I wasn't sleeping properly. It's just about prioritization and focus. That was my excuse in uh, architecture school for going home every night at 11. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if you didn't get the work done, then your professor, I'm sure, was, wasn't very happy. I remember seeing everybody groggy-eyed in the morning, up all night, and knowing that they weren't doing anything besides just, you know, hanging out and living in the studio. So I'm not the biggest proponent of lots of all-nighters. Don't get me wrong. Like, when I was an undergrad, I didn't sleep at all. <laughs> I did many, many all-nighters. I'm a bit of a hypocrite in that sense, but I don't think it's it's necessary now. You're wiser now. Yeah, I'm wiser. <laughs> so you just do all-nighters when you're paying for it. When you're getting paid for it, you get your sleep. So maybe, you know, because the, the term hip-hop architecture has been coming up in the last couple of years, and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are just unfamiliar with that term and are probably confused about what exactly it is. Could you just kind of give a little summary of how you define hip-hop architecture? Sure. I think that confusion is great because it's part of the provocation. Just calling it hip-hop architecture allows people to start to think about what they think hip-hop is and what they think architecture is and how they think those two things connect. So a lot of the work I've been doing is unpacking that term and understanding what it might mean to different people. And I think the first misunderstanding of it is that people misunderstand what hip hop is. When they think hip hop, they're thinking about rap music mostly. 
And hip hop is really a much larger cultural movement than that. And it has a really long history that goes 40, almost 50 years back and has all these different elements that comprise it. So I talk quite a bit about the original four elements, which are DJing, MCing, b-boying, and graffiti. But there are all these other elements that are attached to hip hop as well. Karis, one quite famously talks about knowledge being the fifth element. And then there's mm, writing, nice. there's, there's fashion. There's a whole lifestyle that's part of hip hop culture that has been consistent and evolving and growing for quite a number of years. And I think one of the biggest cases that I've made is that architecture needs to be one of those elements. Architecture needs to find its space within that cultural phenomenon where it can express itself. So any major cultural movement in any era, especially in Western culture, has had architecture be a part of its movement. So if you think about modernism or Baroque music, Baroque movement or the Renaissance, each of those were not just architectural movements. They were music and drama and dance and art. And hip hop has all of the other four. It just doesn't have architecture. So part of what I'm striving for is understanding what is the core of that hip hop culture? How does it express itself through architecture? And what are all of the other kind of relationships between the two? So first of all, I just have to say that was beautifully explained. And the best way I have, you know, I've been trying to prep for this conversation and make sure that I sort of had a good sense in my head, but you just laid it all down in, in three minutes. So thank you. That was beautifully done. And the, the connection to history and Baroque architecture movements and everything. Love it. So well done. <laughs> all right. So go on. Yeah. So there's a second part to that is about how hip hop itself as a movement actually emerged out of a very specific architectural environment. So we make the connection back to the South Bronx all the time. And the South Bronx is the 1970s, 1960s South Bronx era was a result of years and years of bad planning and bad design and bad decisions about the architectural environment. So one of the most important points in the history of hip hop was the creation of the South Bronx Expressway, which was developed by Robert Moses. And that cut its way through, at the time, a really vibrant lower class Jewish neighborhood and cut right through it. And then the property values plummeted all the way around the Cross Bronx Expressway. So the only people who could afford that were lower class Blacks and Hispanics, Caribbean people who moved into the South Bronx. And tenements were burning, buildings were being demolished, and it was one of the highest concentration of poverty in the entire country. The architectural typology of that time was obviously the towers in the park not the beautiful Corbusian towers in the park, but the lowest common denominator, brick face, small windowed, terrible elevator towers. And that kind of architecture was the same spaces that people lived in, not just at home, but in schools. So the schools, the residences, and the prisons all kind of shared the same language of architecture. And this was the backdrop against which hip-hop emerged. So hip-hop was kind of a response, a direct response 
to the lack of any kind of music programs in the schools, drama programs in the schools, art programs in the schools, or any kind of way of individual expression. So this really rich, dense individual expressionism came out of a very specific architectural condition. So you can't really talk about urbanism or architecture in New York City without talking about hip hop. So those two things are immediately connected through that. Do you see kind of the architecture of hip hop evolving in the same way that hip hop is evolving? Well, first, we have to define where the architecture of hip hop is actually happening to know if it has evolved or it's going to evolve. And I think up until now, there have been very few projects that you can actually put your finger on and say, this is hip hop architecture and that is not hip hop architecture. So part of the project of the exhibition is really to bring a lot of these projects together that may or may not have been recognized within a larger movement and saying, okay, all of these are part of this conversation. So we can actually track the trajectory of some of these projects from 25 years ago, from 1992, 1993, when the first students were testing some of these projects in their architecture theses. And we can trace those all the way through now where those students are now professionals, practitioners, they're, they're professors, teachers, and they're now testing out these ideas at larger scales in real practice. So we can see some of this work evolving and changing, but up until now, it hasn't been unilaterally defined as hip-hop architecture. So there's a project, and I'm sorry, it's on the cover sheet. When you go to the website for the exhibit that's on the, the cover. It's formula. It's formula. Thank you. So can you talk a little about that project and how it exemplifies what you're saying here about testing these ideas? Yeah. So James Garrett Jr. is one of the partners at Formula. And he used to, when he was in high school, before he went to college and got deprogrammed by architecture school, he was a graffiti artist. So he used to run with a crew. He used to tag around St. Paul. He used to be heavily involved in the hip hop culture. So the Juxta Art Center, which is what that project was or is, is a project for a nonprofit organization that is teaching students arts and art through hip hop culture. So it's about hip hop as programmatically. However, they use that as a catalyst to think about how to imagine the massing of the building, how to imagine its positioning within the city, how to imagine how the walls themselves, the exterior facade of the building is actually activating the street and reflecting some of the activity that's going on inside. So he describes it as the lines on the outside mimicking the hand styles or the hand stroke of the graph artist, the graph writer, writing, if you will, on the face of the building. And then those lines also were supposed to be glowing, lighted, LED panels that would change color at different times, depending on some of the activity that's going on inside. And then it would also have images on the face as well that participate in that overall collage. So the process of putting it together and the content of what's being put together are all relating back to hip hop itself, even though the image of the building may not immediately make someone think hip hop. 
So what interests me or what confuses me maybe a little is that when I think of the term hip hop architecture, I think of users influencing an environment that has been given to them in their own ways. So people personalizing the environment. And what I keep going back to when I think about hip hop architecture is actually something that I love, which is the Chandigarh in Corbus Chandigarh. The Sector 17 area is a sort of shopping area that's all just complete brutalist buildings. But you look at it and every day it's changing because there's new market stalls, there's new signage, there's new colorful flags. It's really the people and the users that activate what is otherwise kind of an, you could say, an oppressive order that was handed down by the architect. So I struggle a little bit with the idea of the architects trying to bring that messy vitality, as Venturi would say, to the buildings themselves through the image of lines that represent that activity or, you know, lines that represent that sort of disordered reimagining of a space that was given, as you say, by the in the South Bronx by administrative goals on high from the government. How do you deal with that? How do you change that? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up, Donna, because I think you actually have a much more developed perspective on the topic than most others who are just recently being introduced to it. I'm completely with you. I think that the ultimate ideal of hip hop architecture is something that is really inclusive. It's participatory. It's constantly changing. It's the people who have less of a voice expressing their voice by changing their environment, whatever environments that exist, whatever environments that have been given to them, the environments especially given by authorities, by municipal authorities, and taking individual actions to then change that environment. However, I think there are broader definitions that we're working with. Your definition is the one that I think I resonate most with. However, when we get down that rabbit hole, then we get into a place (laughs) where we talk about hip-hop architecture actually being a contradiction, where it's something that, if we're being really pure and honest about it, It's something that can never truly happen because hip-hop doesn't want to be architecture. Right, right. doesn't want to be (laughs) hip-hop. I love that contradiction, though. It's really fertile. (laughs) Fertile. It's really fascinating. Um, It's something I usually say for the end. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. It's okay. It's something I... I usually kind of uh, talk about after people have have bought into the larger the larger framework. So you kind of spoiled my my punchline there. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. This is a great part of this conversation that it can be that and all the other things. Like all the other things are really smart and really developed and really provocative. But when we get to the the meat of it and we start talking about individual agency over environment. And that is the real expression. That's the real individual expression of culture because culture is always changing. It's not something that's marketed. It's not something that's packaged. It's not something that's commercialized. It's always something that is is constantly evolving and moving and changing. I think why it's important to talk about it as architecture is that architecture is a really old, slow-moving, repressive, conservative profession and discipline that is interested in many, many, many things, but is very, very slow to adopt and inculcate new ideas into its canons. But that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I've been thinking about this for a long time. And one of the things that seems to resonate with for me is that hip hop and rap music was decon before architecture ever got 
clue what decom Absolutely. was. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting to me is that elements of hip hop are all within the, the genre itself. So it, for me, part of it is self-referential and in using instruments that are not instruments. Records <laughs> are typically not instruments, but now it's created an instrumental. Mm -hmm. But you have two players on the stage. You have the MC yeah. and you have the DJ and they have very different roles to play. So even if it does solidify, I would say that the MC would definitely not respect anyone coming up there fucking with their lyrics unless they were invited. <laughs> so I think uh, the rap music I gravitate towards are the ones that are more critical and have a more critical framework. And the ones that I don't typically gravitate towards are the ones that usually wind up being radio play. But there's room for it. Like you said, there's room for all sorts of things. I mean, <laughs> we have Machine Gun Kelly over here and then we have uh, <laughs> we have Eminem over there and there's plenty of room in the genre. But what I'm interested in is that it doesn't seem like architecture has ever taken a cue artistically from works generated by Black people. I don't ever hear about, oh, well, there's a representation of blues music in architecture. Well, there's a representation of jazz in architecture. Art has no problem sampling and cross-sampling from music of no matter where. But architecture seems obviously rooted in, like what you were saying, is very conservative, very much wants to be thought of as a gentleman's, and gentlemen don't rap. Gentlemen don't rap, but it's, yeah. you know, <laughs> I mean, you're touching on a, a couple, like two or three really key issues that are worthy of conversation. Well, first off, you, I'm really happy you dropped the F-bomb because uh, <laughs> that's me. That's my role. Yeah. Like, like I, I think I would lose my street cred if, if our podcast didn't have an E beside it, you know, the more explicit the show, the more <laughs> listens we get. So I'll just say fuckity fuckity fuck. Yeah. yeah. It's welcome here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so in terms of architecture, so there is. You know, Mike Ford talks a bit about how Le Corbusier was influenced by Black culture and how, you know, he dated Josephine Baker for a while. And he has a famous quote about jazz music. And if architecture was as developed as jazz music, then how amazing the spaces would be. And a few people I know have tested out jazz as a place to start within architecture or to create architecture through jazz. And a lot of people try to relate that back to what we're talking about with hip hop architecture. But I think that still gets reductive in terms of thinking about it as architecture reflecting a music style. So I'm much more interested in the kind of philosophies and processes and politics and economics that go on behind the scenes that produce that architecture. How can architecture itself be produced in a very different way? So not just design techniques and strategies, but back to what Donna was saying, that the whole relationship between what's built and who's building it and who's designing it is completely turned upside down that there's a way for us to call things that are architecture that are changing environments in intentional ways, call those architecture, even though the person who created it or the people who created it aren't licensed professionals, right? Sworn to preserve the health, safety, and welfare of the public. So I'm much more interested in, in that part of it. And, you know, you talk about decon, there's a part in the exhibition where we talk about, it's called B-sides, it's in the, on the mezzanine level, where we just have a few little insertions about other architectural movements that may be tangentially related, that are worthy of conversation, 
within the larger framework, but are not part of the main exhibition because they weren't intentionally about hip hop. So deconstructivism is, of course, in terms of its techniques and its methods. I like to talk about the neo-postmodernists because they talk about sampling and mashups and cutups and remixes all the time within their work. I also talk about informal settlements, like things like favelas and slums have been forming cities for generations, for forever. And there's a very amazing, beautiful, vibrant texture to all of that work that just kind of happens, although we don't recognize it as capital A architecture. So all of that needs to be part of the conversation for sure. It's interesting, though. I mean, I was going to bring up the favelas because that's the first thing that came to mind. They operate outside of or you know not within a codified system. Mm-hmm. So we... We have codes here that it really rigidly adhere to and don't allow for remixing. And it's really, you have to work pretty hard to, I mean, there is some framework in how we interpret things and maybe we can get something by, but generally speaking, the people that are remixing and creating spaces are ones who are feeling the pressure of capitalism kind of wrapping around them and they have no choice but to remix. I mean, over here in Minneapolis, along the Hiawatha Corridor, we have a camp, a homeless camp uh, that has um, been created. And it is a it is a community that is mostly First Nations people and it's adjacency to First Nation community in South Minneapolis here. And they have been working pretty closely with NGOs and the city has allowed it to exist. And the police department has actually been looking, not breaking it up, but kind of operating on the periphery, making sure that everything's okay. And generally speaking, the community has been pretty sustainable and pretty vibrant. I don't know how vibrant it is. I'm not there, but I've heard a lot of good things about it. There's been some issues with some drugs, some illnesses over there. But by and large, the reason why the community picked this spot along the highway is it provided safety and they had uh, control of access points. So here's a, here's a, a great example of something operating because of the pressures that exist in uh, Minneapolis with respect to housing and services and have forced this thing to be created. And so I'm curious, you know, it seems like in the South Bronx, a lot of those pressures about the bad architecture, a neglectful police department, a, a city that's told to go fuck itself by and forward. And they were forced to, you know, building is an expensive thing. It's not really accessible to most people who are living in certain circumstances. I mean, how do you propose or is there anyone considering how that can operate on a level that actually makes it something that that gets at some of those issues? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are thinking about that. A lot of people are working at that level there. You know, the work that Estudio Teddy Cruz is doing is really thinking about using discarded elements and creating ways for people to individually create environments for themselves. You know, there are a lot of things that are happening, like projects like in Medellin, where they're focusing primarily on infrastructure and allowing the people in the informal settlements to work around that and just taking care of some of the most negative parts of the slum, like getting, you know, sewage around or transporting sewage around or getting rid of sewage and stormwater and getting power into the space, you know, creating a framework for then people to operate by themselves or work like that. I think it's called Quintana del Roy, Quintana Roo, something like that. And it's a a project by Arahanjo Aravena that where they just really famous how they basically built 50% of this housing 
and then allowed people to fill in the rest of the 50%. I think those processes are brilliant. And they're all related to some of the processes we're thinking about with hip hop, that hip hop can actually enlighten us about those things. And I think it's not that all of those things are immediately hip hop architecture. I think it's more about understanding that there is a new framework, a new base, a new movement that we can name and put our finger on and say it can be inclusive of all of these different things, all these different ways of working. And the most impactful part of the movement is its ability to influence and energize young African-American and Latino males and females who have been left out of the architectural conversation for such a long time. And we've been talking about and thinking about the underrepresentation issue within architecture for at least 40 years since, or 50 years now since Whitney Young talked to the AIA and we are not much better at it. We moved from 1% to 2% in that 50 years of African-Americans licensed to practice architecture. So if you can actually speak the language of the people and say, this is the same language as architecture can be produced, then you'll start to see a shift. Then you'll start to see more people, more kids, really kids, getting interested in architecture as a possible profession. You know, for a long time, I've been, I've been one who has been resistant to the idea that licensure and all of that and, and getting a bachelor's in architecture was a worthy thing. And in fact, I applaud what Michael Ford does. Although at the same moment, I'm so cynical at this point, I don't know why anyone would want to join his profession. It is ridiculously expensive. It's, it, it's doesn't, the professional organization isn't interested in serving people not in the way that it needs to. It still won't divest itself from any connection to building prisons. It still keeps involved in that. It pays lip service to the ideas uh, and the statement of Whitney Young without really understanding that we should not be involved in making concentration camps for uh, migrants coming to this country. Or building walls. Building walls, having any involvement in you know black sites for CIA. It, it, so it pays a lot of lip service to getting more black women in the profession. Getting, But at the same time, I'm like, you know what? I finally see where the problem is. And I'm, I'm in total agreement with people that want to get the idea that if you can pass the fucking test, you should be a licensed architect. I don't have no problem with licensure. I mean, I think you want to have people walking around and knowing that there's someone you can look to, that they're responsible. But if you can pass the test and not have to spend six years in school, take the fucking test. <laughs> I mean, that yeah. would bring a lot of people into the profession. I have no problem with that now. I used to have a problem with that. But now if we can't get a handle, we can't get a grip on the, the student loan debt, and we're constantly asking kids to join this profession, oh, but first, you got to spend five years in school. Oh, and by the way, they keep cutting your Pell Grants. They keep cutting your Stafford loans. And oh, so we're going to make it harder for you. And then when you're finally done, you have $200,000 in student loan debt. And then you got to try to find a job paying you know $50,000 a year, and you can't even find that. Then you know what? Fuck it. Don't even go to school. I mean, it really, this profession isn't geared to that. 50, it took me about 
eight years in the profession before I got up to 50. You're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I know. I couldn't believe Jeez. it. I started out making 20. I'm like, and I'm like, I see interns making what it took me forever to get. I'm going, I'm just, it blows my mind. Yeah. That's the thing, right? It's still, even what they make today, it's still not enough to live in this profession. Yeah. yeah I don't know if I've fully formulated all of my ideas about licensure. I definitely have ideas and thoughts about it. I think one of the things that thinking about and studying hip hop for the last few years has afforded me is a greater understanding of duality and contradiction. There's so many amazing contradictions within hip hop itself as a culture. Hip rap music, there's so much contradictions within it, but those contradictions kind of define it. Those contradictions make it what it is. And so that's what I love about the term hip hop architecture, that that in and of itself is an inherent contradiction. So I think on the one hand, coming back to licensure, I am thinking about that it's really important to start to push the edges and push the bounds of what the profession is and defining it in a broader way to allow for things like hip-hop architecture to exist or architectural practitioners to operate in different ways and still feel like they are still professionals, they are still architects, and expanding those boundaries and still having the same kind of pathways to getting there. At the same time, I also am of the mind that this movement could be about saying fuck you to architecture and say we're going to create our own fucking thing that's just like really powerful and really amazing and is so impactful across different realms of society that architecture is going to look at it and say, oh, we want to be down. <laughs> like, why have we not been working in that way? Why have we not been operating in that way? And I think this might be that thing that does it. Because if you start to look at some of the people that are in the show, a lot of them aren't licensed professionals. Some of them are, but many of them aren't. Many of them decided to work in visual arts or even our graphic designer, we should do it all. That's made of uh, Jonathan Jackson and his wife, Sarah Jackson. Jonathan was trained as an architect and Sarah's trained as a graphic designer. And they are working at a scale from graphic design all the way to installations. And they recently won, I think it was an Art Daily Award for best interiors. And they're not licensed professionals, right? <laughs> Which I think is amazing. So they're, they've found ways of subverting the entire system, but creating work that's so much more transformative than, than <laughs> anything the profession is, is doing right now. And that's the problem, right? The problem is the way I see it and what you've been talking about this whole time is that in order to save the profession, you have to blow it up. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Like Bob Marley <laughs> says, total destruction, the only solution. Yeah. I say <laughs> you sound like Steve Bannon. No, 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 no. <laughs> Wait, I, I, oh, I thought we were going to talk about Paul. <laughs> so, I mean, assuming, you know, fuck architects, what's the engagement, if any, from the hip hop community in the world of hip hop architecture? It's been interesting thus far. Uh, I think on my end, I've been able to start to make a bit of interesting headway. I think Mike Ford has done a lot more in connecting the topic to hip hop artists and getting some of them involved in his charrettes and in his summer camps. I have been inviting them to engage uh, hip hop artists, DJs, MCs, producers, theorists to engage with me on the academic level. 
to do a couple interviews with me, to do some panel discussions, to come and present at different events. So at the event that I had in LA in July at the MoCA, that was connected to the artist Lauren Halsey's exhibition there. We had Open Mike Eagle, who is a Chicago rapper who's now based in LA and is starting a show on Comedy Central that's a crossover between hip-hop and stand-up comedy. But he did a great album recently called Brick Body Kids Still Daydream. And in that whole album, he's basically talking about the Robert Taylor Holmes in Chicago and using that, humanizing them, making them uh, represent the human body and talking about the relationship between the building and the body and how visceral that whole experience was for him. So that was a fascinating kind of interaction. I also recently discovered Tajay Massey, who was part of a couple Oakland-based hip-hop groups, including the Hieroglyphics, most famously. In the mid-90s, did some really great work. I loved the Hieroglyphics back in the 90s. And he just recently got a Master of Architecture at UC Berkeley. And so that immediately fascinated me that somebody who was successful in the hip hop world decided in his late 30s and early 40s to go back to grad school to study architecture to then practice in a design profession. So he is going to be part of our lectures that are attached to the show at the Center for Architecture. So I think he's going to be either on the November 26th or the December 5th panel talking about his work and his thesis project and how that was influenced by hip hop, but thinking about progressive ways of dealing with housing in San Francisco. It seems the two cultures, because I think punk is a culture beyond the music, they seem so, I mean, obviously they're intertwined. I mean, and I, when I think about, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is... You mean punk and hip-hop? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, to me, I, I think about the way they both operate on the same levels and they come at it from obviously different perspectives, but I think even the class distinction is very much horizontally drawn. And I think the way they attack, I always go to the Sex Pistols, you know, they weren't the best of it. They always, to me, Sid Vicious and um, Johnny Rotten, the way they attacked the institutions and the monarchy and the way they kind of really attacked the Tories. And they too uh, wove in culture, the art, fashion, and even both have borrowed from each other. So they've always been these brothers from another mother kind of connection. And even, you know, I've been, so I've been trying to connect punk and architecture. And so I'm, I'm, you know, just hearing you talk about this today is really um, quite invigorating. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I'm reading recently this book that was written in 1984 about hip hop. It's by Stephen Hagar. And it's great because it was written in 1984. So hip hop was just still becoming a thing. People were just recognizing it as a thing. And even a thing that they thought would disappear in a few years. But he's talking about the early days of the Roxy and no, actually, that wasn't this other book. You've been doing a lot of research. <laughs> yeah, this was actually in Jeff Chang's book, his great book called Can't Stop, Won't Stop. And he's talking about around 1982, the early days of when the Uptown kids were brought down to the Roxy downtown and able to go out to this club before they realized that they were really just the entertainment because they were teenagers invited to a club and all kinds of great things were happening like sex and drugs and rock and roll. But the punk 
crew, the punk scene, and the hip-hop scene were all happening there at the same time. And they were overlapping and learning from each other and influencing each other. So that was a really fascinating chapter for me to read and hear about the overlap between the two. I think they definitely have a lot of connections, cross-connections. And I think there may even be enough of a clearly defined culture within punk to think about how that would manifest itself within the architectural realm and how that might distinguish itself from something like hip-hop architecture or it might actually learn from hip-hop architecture in a different way. But yeah, I too am fascinated by that connection. I think the biggest distinction for me seems to be the kind of social and class structures from where they both started. You know, one being the kind of poorest of the poor Black and Latino kids that had virtually zero public support and another culture that even though it might have started with lower class white people in Britain, by the time it came to the United States, it was really kind of a disgruntled middle class white kind of expression. So that was the main difference in why they were the way they are. But I think a lot of the way they were was very similar. And the fact that they were happening at the same time is, is also quite fascinating. So, Seku, we are already familiar with the work of Michael Ford and you, of course, with this new show coming up. Who are the players, you know, in the world of hip hop architecture? And what are the kind of roles that people are kind of taking on in pushing forward this movement or ideology? So I think a lot of people might leave the show and have a sneaking suspicion that a lot of people in the show are there because they went to Cornell in the 90s and because <laughs> I went to Cornell in the 90s. But the reality is that that was a kind of hotbed for this topic at that time. We had a really critical mass of Black and Latino students at Cornell in the mid-90s and we had the kind of space to talk about these issues, to talk about new ideas that were relevant to us, including hip hop architecture. So we'll see people like Nate Williams, who is, we, we call him the godfather of hip hop architecture because he was the first person in 1993 to do his entire thesis about hip hop architecture and even had like a soundtrack and music at his presentation. It was a really immersive experience. I only hear about it in legend because I didn't get to Cornell until 94. So he's going to be heavily featured in the show in a couple of spots. Lacon Jafis, who I think is doing some of the most amazing architectural work, and he's not a practicing architect. He is, in terms of the things that he's visualizing, the spaces that he's imagining, he's doing a lot of art installation projects now, but the imagery that comes out of his studio is, is fascinating and is exactly what I think hip-hop architecture could look like. If it looks like one thing, it looks like that, even though I don't think it looks like one thing. But we'll also see people like Amanda Williams, who is also someone who's trained as an architect, practiced as an architect, taught architecture, but is now a practicing visual artist and has gotten more traction from painting over abandoned houses and from building new houses. And some of her work is quite provocative and transformative. There are other people that we'll see like Craig Wilkins, not Cornell affiliated, but he is someone who was also early on the scene testing um, some of his ideas about hip-hop architecture. He's done the most extensive writing 
before me on the topic. And he's, you know, he published his first piece about it in 1999, I think, and then 2001. And he also did a book in 2007 called Aesthetics of Equity, which is the first time in a book form that hip hop architecture was mentioned or described in any real way. We'll also see people who are professors now who are starting to test out ideas of hip-hop architecture in their studios. So Chris Cornelius, who is at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, has done two different studios, having students design hip-hop museums through the lens of hip-hop as a design provocation. And we'll also see work from University of Cincinnati, their Metro Lab that Stephen Slaughter has been actively involved in. And he also ran a couple capstone studios on hip hop architecture. And we'll see some of that work. We'll see some work from my own students who have done a studio on hip hop architecture as well. So Seku, not to put you on the spot. I've been on the spot the whole time. No, no, you've been great. It's been great. And I asked this a little bit tongue in cheek because there's a two part. Who's the vanilla ice of the uh, hip hop architecture movement? But really, my question really goes to the idea that... I, and I have an answer to okay, that. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I do have no, an I'm answer. Cur- I, what I am curious about is that, because I think this is a fundamentally very interesting topic, um, and I'm glad that there are people thinking about it very critically. I think criticality is, you know, again, very important for me to kind of be, to kind of like just feel uh, energized that there's something here. But I'm concerned too about the appropriation of the idea of hip hop architecture. Because I think on many levels, we want people to kind of think very much in that kind of mode where they're questioning everything and the nature of things and the nature of language and the nature of what it is to be an architect. But at the same time, I I wonder this being a white guy, I'm ever present knowing that misappropriation of black culture is is rampant in everything. Maybe you could be the vanilla ice. Shit. (laughs) (laughs) If I could. if I can have one song. <laughs> <laughs> no. So answer the question. I, I think I'm hoping he doesn't really get pissed off about this because I really respect his work and I'm happy that he's here as part of the conversation. But we've all discovered this building called The Hive that's in Melbourne, Australia. And if you haven't seen it, it's kind of five years ago, if you typed in hip hop architecture, that image would come up first. It's a, an apartment building that has a graffiti tag of Hive that's 3D extruded on the side. And a lot of people were kind of disturbed by that idea initially. And when we presented it three years ago at the Hip Hop Architecture Symposium here at Syracuse University, the audience or the invited guests spent about eight minutes tearing it apart. (laughs) And talking about how it was maybe a decent start, but it falls really short of what we think hip-hop architecture is. And since then, the architects, ITN Architects in Melbourne, they have done another follow-up project called End-to-End, where they have these decommissioned subway cars that are tagged in graffiti and they put it on top of a building that is also kind of designed in a pseudo hip-hop way and they turn those streetcars into a restaurant on the top of this building in melbourne so i decided to include both those projects in the show as well as a video clip a very short video clip and the commentary from the symposium about that work and i included 
primarily because I want to have that conversation. And the immediate dismissal is like, oh, this this guy's from Australia, some white guy from Australia. What does he know about hip hop? And this thing is just an extrusion. How is that hip hop architecture? The interesting thing about it is that he actually collaborated with a real graffiti artist, a reputable graffiti artist to do that piece. And we have some other work that's going to be in the exhibition that where there were some really amazing collaborations between architects and graffiti artists. But I keep that work in the show and I want that work to be in the show because of the kind of discursive moment. And then he contacted me afterwards saying that he had worked his schedule around his New York City trip so that he's actually going to attend the opening and the symposium for the show. So now he's going to be there. And I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) But luckily, I was like, you know what? I have actually treated his work respectably. I've described very clearly. And I've put it in a in a really prime location. So it's not like I'm Excellent. I'm shitting on his work. So I was like, you know, I just so you know, I like I'm very excited that you're coming. I'm really happy to hear the conversation that's gonna come from that. But just so you know, your work has kind of been a bit controversial and not everybody agrees with its inclusion. So we'll see what happens. Nobody gets in a beef with vanilla ice and lives to tell about it, man. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Vanilla Ice did get into architecture in a kind of tangential way with his uh, reality show. True. Right. He's a builder, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's really funny. At the symposium, the most frequently named person in the entire two-day event was Iggy Azalea. I was going to say, because she's from Australia, right? She's from Melbourne as well. Yeah. Iggy Azalea was more discussed than anyone else. Oh, man. It's hilarious. I'm a Cardi B fan. (laughs) Cardi is the realness. She's from the Bronx. That's right. (laughs) Well, so I so okay. Are there any West Coast represented? Because isn't there a big East Coast West Coast fight in the? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was in the mid '90s, and it wasn't really a real thing. It was much more made up and real. But yeah, we have West Coast representation, like Lauren Halsey, who I mentioned before. She had Uh an individual go at the MoCA. She also had another installation at the Hammer Museum, and she's building that into a full-on installation in Crenshaw. Another great example of somebody who did one year of architecture school and decided that architecture didn't fit who she was and decided to practice visual art and now is circling back to say, now I have this platform. I can test some of my architectural ideas in real life and produce architecture, even though I'm not a licensed architect. So she's actually going to come to the opening as well on her own dime. Tajay Massey, as I said, is from the West Coast, and he's going to be part of our panel discussion. I bring up the West Coast just because I, and I mean, full disclosure, I'm a 52-year-old white lady in the Midwest. I know nothing about hip hop. And when I was reading about this exhibit, it says in there, it's been five decades of hip hop. And I'm like, that's my age. That's as long as I've been alive, hip hop has been a an emerging and now dominant force in the culture. And I really don't know anything about it. So finally, I'm proud to say I've purchased my first what I would call, and I hope you don't laugh at me, would call a hip hop album, which is The Coup from 2012, the soundtrack to Sorry to Bother You, which is fantastic. It's the best 
record I've heard in so Who long, and it is so revolutionary. Uh, Boots Riley is a is a revolutionary. You know, oh, he's yeah. he's like, oh my god, it's so good, and I love it so much. So I'm trying to catch up. First off, Donna, I think you know more, understand more about hip hop than you think. Thank you, but and we all do because it's a pervasive culture. Well, exactly. We take for granted how influenced we are by fashion trends in hip hop by the language of hip-hop you know we all use terms from hip-hop all the time without thinking about it yeah absolutely i repped this or i yeah i'm embarrassed to say dis but i do yeah (laughs) people say dis and rep and and uh shout outs and this is all coming from the culture or you know if you've ever i don't know if, if somebody's ever worn a jersey that's two sizes too big or they've ever worn a baseball cap for a team that they don't really support (laughs) or if they have headphones made by beats right Right. that's dr dre's company or if you even use apple music apple music is johnny ivy and dr dre created apple music so (laughs) it's such a pervasive culture that we don't even know or notice when we are participating. Yeah, it's the American story. Yeah, (laughs) and and I argue quite vociferously that it is the dominant culture of our era, of our generation. I would agree. I think I might fly out next weekend just to come. I'm so excited for this now. I want to. (laughs) Just to fly out for that one fucking day. I'm just like, I'll fly out Friday night. I'll be there for Saturday. I'll fly back home. (laughs) I mean, it's like, I'm hoping there'll be, somebody was talking about a line around the corner. I'm like, that'd be fucking awesome if there's a line outside waiting to get in i'd be so (laughs) ecstatic there is at five o'clock we're gonna have a little vip pre-opening where i'll give a tour to some invited guests if you are gonna come let me know i'll put you (laughs) on the guest list checking tickets now and then it's open to the general public at six (laughs) o'clock and what day is that just to confirm that's on monday monday october at the Center for Architecture. If you can't make it Monday, October 1st, because a lot of people work and don't live in New York, then there's Saturday, October 6th, when we're going to have the symposium with some of the same characters who were at the symposium in Syracuse. So that'll be Andres Hernandez, Craig Wilkins, Nina Cook-John, possibly Lake Jafus. He wasn't on the bill, but he might be able to show up. He has a very, very busy schedule these days. And then there's going to be a workshop by Black Space, which is a new kind of group in New York City that that are doing some amazing things. Is anything going to be live streamed? I hope so. Maybe. I don't know. Somebody's asking me if I'm going to live stream the event. I'll have to give somebody my phone. Maybe I've been gathering a lot of Instagram followers recently. So maybe if people check out at Seku21, they'll see a live stream on the evening. Well, let us know if it is so we can share that information with our readers. Absolutely. So Paul asked a question earlier that I didn't answer because Donna completely derailed the whole conversation. Sorry. (laughs) Um, But that's good because it got real. It got real really quickly. But the question was about what do you want people to take away from the show? So when I presented the content, I did a slideshow of all the content of the show to the advisory board a few months back. And when I was done, everybody let out a sigh and was like, wow, you know, Oof. and it, it was just like, wow, that's a whole lot. That's a lot to deal with. And that's exactly the response I want people to have. I want them to be blown away. I want them to be saturated. I want them to be overwhelmed. 
And I want them to come in not knowing what hip hop architecture is and leaving knowing exactly what it is, although they may not be able to have a very singular image of what it is. I want people to leave and say, you know what, I know exactly what it is now, but I can't give you a single building that is endemic of hip hop architecture that exemplifies all of what hip hop architecture is. And that's to me is a win because as I describe it in the show, hip hop architecture is about the identity of who's producing it, about the processes that they use to create it, and about the image that might relate or not to some other form of hip hop. Very cool. So Ken, final two questions. Sweet. <laughs> Sekune dropped a lot of stuff in there, so that's great. I usually ask two questions. What are you reading and what are you listening to these days? Yeah, thanks for prepping that question. So I did drop a couple books that I was reading. Mostly those are in preparation for the seminars that I'm doing. The Don't Can't Stop, Won't Stop by Jeff Chang and Hip Hop by Stephen Hagar. I'm also reading Black Noise by Trisha Rose for that same class. I'm also reading all kinds of other stuff, like non-architecture stuff, non-hip-hop stuff. You know, I just picked up The Handmaid's Tale the other day, recently. I also just finished Ta-Nehisi's Coates' new book that was, was really amazing, just telling the whole history of African-American culture through talking to his son. I thought that was really, really powerful, just giving a message to his son of how to grow up as a black man in this world. What's the name of that book? It's one of his bestsellers. It's Is it Between the World and Me? Between the World and Me. Okay. So the name of the book by Tana Houston Coates is Between the World and Me. And I also am reading Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime, which luckily enough is coincidentally is required reading for the entire Syracuse University. Oh, nice. That's like their freshman book or whatever. Yeah, or it's like their first year, first year experience oh, freshman book. Excellent. Good choice. Yeah. So he's going to come here for our Emma Martin Luther King Day celebration and speak. So I assume I'll be invited. I hope I'm invited. We'll see. That's about it. But what are you listening to? I was going to mention before, talking about West Coast rappers, I just recently discovered Anderson Pack. This is how out of it I am. People think I'm a hip hop head and I'm plugged into all of the new music. I, I'm really not. I listened to a whole lot of hip hop in the 90s and a little bit after that. But Anderson Pack is amazing. He's just like, he's a little bit crossover, but still really, really good. What else? Kanye released like four or five albums in a row from his Wyoming studio this summer. Each of them were seven. They were all seven tracks long. And each one was one week after the other. And every single one is fucking amazing. <laughs> I, lo I love uh, Kids See Ghosts. Kids See Ghosts is so, great. So, so good. And there's even a reference to Herzog and Demeron in it. Yeah, everybody's picking up that Herzog and Demeron quote. But he's like, the cool thing about it is that he's name dropping, like he's name dropping an architect like name dropping somebody more famous than an architect, but he doesn't really say anything about them, really. It's kind of an empty quote, but the Nas album is really great. The track Cops Shot the Kid, the Cops Shot the Kid, the Cops Shot the Kid. It's brilliant. It's fucking amazing. So that's just a little smattering of what I'm listening to. Also listening to some old reggae, some old Barris Hammond. <laughs> so, stuff like that. Well, I really hope to make it out to the East Coast to check out the show while it's up. It's going to be opening on Monday, as we've said, at the Center for Architecture. 
and that will be up until January 12th. For those uh, in the area, make sure to check out the schedule on the website. We'll put links to the website in the show notes and links to Seku's website in the show notes and a few other things that we talked about. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. And uh, good luck in these last final days leading up to the opening on Monday. I'm sure you're going to be having a busy week. Oh, yeah. And weekend. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'll need the luck. I'll need the support, but it'll all come together. So maybe not a full eight hours of sleep every night. (laughs) (laughs) I'll sleep. I'll still sleep. Good for you. Well, best of luck in these next few busy days. And I hope to make it out there to the show. Sounds awesome. Thank you. Well, that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks, and talk to you next time.